Okay, welcome to the Drumming Career Podcast. This is episode number two. I had a blast last week. I had a great guest, Tony Lewis. If you didn't see it, make sure you stop over to my fan page and check it out. I also have a page on my website. It's joegaretti.com slash podcast. You can check it out there. Uh, but before you do that, you're going to want to stick around because this week's guest is not a drummer. He is a bassist, um, which is our most natural ally in the animal kingdom. He has been the bassist and or musical director for over 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members. He's been in 12 Broadway musicals, including Rock of Ages. Uh, he was a fixture on the New York City music scene. And he is a good friend of mine, Mr. Ivan Bodley. Here he is. Nice. Way to slide in there, buddy. How you doing? Good to see you. So far, so good. Good to see you too, man. It's been a long time. Yes, it has been a long time. First, Ivan, what are you up to now that you're uh, locked in your home? You're in New York City? I am in Queens, New York, only a couple of miles from where you and I used to convene weekly to... Uh create so much music in the basement and I've been here in the house for uh, going on 10 months now waiting for the world to change 10 months wow 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 yeah um so well before we get too crazy about tell us about yourself where are you from originally grew up in Chattanooga Tennessee uh in the deep south and uh my parents named me Ivan as some kind of uh, uh cruel joke I think you know during the Cold War in the Deep South, they knew it was a, a screwed up thing to do. So they said, let's give him a, a normal middle name, which is Peter, just in case I get hazed too much growing up. Uh, and I did, but I managed to survive with Ivan intact. Cool. Uh, after I went to Ch after Chattanooga, I moved to New Orleans, Louisiana to go to uh, college and then ended up in New York, Los Angeles, London, Boston and back in New York again. Back in New York again. Just like that. Okay. So bass, what was the, uh, how'd you get started with the bass? Uh, you know, I dabbled in a bunch of uh, things as a kid. I dabbled in guitar for a minute. I played viola for like a half a minute. I played piano for like a year in junior high school. And nothing really stuck the way I like it. You know, I, I liked music, obviously, and, and was you know, spent most of my preteen and teen years, you know, immersed in the FM radio, trying to, you know, uh, escape my troubles via, via sound. And somewhere around, uh, I didn't actually pick up a bass until I was a senior in high school. So I think the year before that, I was starting to see things like, I remember seeing Rick James on the Midnight Special playing You and I live. And it's a fabulous four note bass line that I just immediately locked into my brain. And there was a kid at my school who had a bass that I don't know, some off-brand bass that he either made himself or, or, or found or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it only had two strings on it. It only had an E string and an A string. Uh, and as the, as the jokes we learn later on as bass players go, those are all the money notes right there. So I was able to pick out this Rick James bass line on this bass with two strings and think like, yeah, I could, I could do that. I could do that. Uh, then I spent a summer washing dishes at a dude ranch in Colorado, believe it or not. It was a summer job. And I saved up $425 to buy a used Fender Precision bass uh, and studied with a friend of mine in high school named Rick Lazarus, a great friend of mine to this day. He was actually uh, 
currently the road manager for Josh Turner. He's still in the industry and working hard. Um, and my dad asked me what I wanted for my, for my birthday that year. And I said, bass lessons. I think Rich at that time was charging me uh, $15 a week. And wow. uh, yeah, it's a good value for, for good value for dollar. And again, the, the base I bought would cost $425. You know, it was a, I think it was only about two years old at the time. It was a 78 precision base. I bought it in 81, still have it, still use it. It's a great, great axe. So good investment for dollar. Uh, and then it was off to the races. Like, so I really, but the, the point being, I didn't start till quite late. Senior in high school. Okay, and so uh, when did you get sort of enraptured into wanting to do it professionally? It, that happened pretty early on because uh, I went to uh, an all boys high school down in Chattanooga, and uh, I was not a jock, so I was uh, not a popular kid there at all. You know, uh, kind of funny looking, kind of Jewish. They weren't really vibing with my whole thing. You know, hazed a lot. <laughs> So I, you know, joined the drama club and all, hung out with all the drama nerds and did all their plays. And then once I got to the base together, they had an annual talent show in the spring uh, at that school called the uh, called Ragtails, the Red and Gray International Talent and Lampoon Show. And my senior year of school, I realized that nobody had produced the show. Nobody had like you know set up the gymnasium or done flyers or anything. So I ended up uh, producing the whole show myself. I charged an exorbitant admission fee of $1 per person. Wow. So I was able to afford uh, our sound guy, which is my friend Rick, who taught me how to play bass. You see how small towns work. It's all, all related. I see. Uh, and, you know, and being a bass player, uh, I remember when I first started studying with Rick and his older brother, Joey Lazarus, they both told me, they said, oh, as a bass player, you'll, you'll never go hungry. Meaning every band needs one. And it's not sort of the first starring role that people think of. So like everybody's a frustrated guitarist or a frustrated singer. There are far fewer frustrated bass players or even functional bass players. <laughs> so at that first talent show, I ended up playing in four bands, you know, and it went over tremendously. I actually, believe it or not, still have a recording of this high school gymnasium going ballistic for us doing cover tunes of The Police, Rush, the Who, Pat Benatar, you know, all the big hits of the day, Tommy Two-Tone. Oh, nice. So, you know, having this uh, very sudden and very complete uh, adulation, this adoring of this group of people who actively hated me and wanted to, wanted to do physical harm to my person, you know, <laughs> it, it really reoriented my brain chemistry. I said, oh, this, this is something I need to try to figure out how to, how to pursue. But that said, as a you know 17 year old first time basis, you know when you go off to college at age 18, I was nowhere near ready to sort of commit to being a music major. I didn't have that much foundation. I had no training. There was no music program at this school, so everything I was was done was self taught. You know, my friend Rick who taught me how to play. So I went to to uh, Tulane University in New Orleans as a biomedical engineering major. Wow. Did that for two years, you know, you know, I was sitting beside a bunch of ROTC guys who are designing uh, replacement knee joints and replacement hip joints. And I found it really interesting. But when I got to like, you know, second year, fourth semester, calculus, engineering calculus, doing integrals in three dimensions, I kind of went like, this might not be what I'm looking for. <laughs> so I transferred to the psychology department. I have a degree in psychology. But the entire time I was there, 
my main extracurricular activity was I was music director of the campus radio station, which was a 1500 watt uh, FM station in New Orleans called WTUL, which covered the entire city, had a, a potential listenership of a million people. I was a music director there. I was a drive time disc jockey. Uh, and that through that, I started to get into the music scene of New Orleans, you know, into dealing with the club owners, the concert promoters, because they would call the station and say, hey, are you playing this new record from this band called the Red Hot Chili something? Mm -hmm. I'd be like, yeah, we actually have the record. We're playing it. It's doing well. I think you should go ahead and book them. Uh, and the first time I made that recommendation on behalf of my friends, the Chili Peppers, they, I think 15 people showed up to see them. Wow. Uh, this would have been in New Orleans in 1984. And I spent the next whole a section of my my music business career telling anyone who were listening you got to hear this band the red hot chili peppers you have to hear them they're fantastic you must know about them as soon as i quit the business and moved out of the country uh the next year they released mother's milk and became international superstars so what i think they learned from the business that as soon as i stopped promoting them that was their key to success so I that was to, it that's all it yeah. took so that's you all. just kind of built up the hype and then once you got out of the way they kind of just became huge. I, I think it was sort of like the negative hype. People were going like, well, if this guy likes them, then we they can't possibly. Well, they, they, they were successful in spite of you is kind of what you're saying, to, to spite you. To spite me. <laughs> and also once they left, once I left the country, then they were like, okay, cool. The coast is clear. We can now continue we, with our career. We could give this guy some credibility. Okay. Sure. Wow. So that's, uh, that's pretty heavy. So that was in, um, in Tulane, you were, you were the, the, the DJ there? I was the music director of the station, yeah, for almost the entire four years. I started as a freshman right away, ascended to the music director position within the spring of my freshman year and stayed there until, until I graduated. And that set me up with, as a music director of the station, my job was to audition the recordings that were coming in and decide whether to you know, program them or not and keep up all the contacts with all the record label promotion people. And those were the contacts that I developed that allowed me to go into the record business because as soon as I graduated from Tulane, I actually started working for Epic Records. Wow. I was a publicist for them first in, um, in uh, the New York office. I was an assistant in the publicity department. And then I got hired on as manager of publicity West Coast in the LA office and did that. That whole gig was about three years top to tail. And it was based on the direct connections that I made as being music director of the station. Wow, that's heavy. So you got a whole other look at the music business that most of us oh, don't ever get. Oh boy, did I. And from the inside, and I had a corporate Amex card and the whole thing. And after three years of that and seeing how it worked, I actually had the vice president of, of product management once tell me, he said, I, I know nothing about music. I could be selling soap. And that told me what I needed to know about the music business. You know, and he'd made some people some very, very big stars. You know, so he was very good at marketing. He was a genius at it, you know, but my interest was the music, not the business. So I put down the corporate Amex card and I completely walked away from the thing uh, and moved to England. I had a, a chance to move to England um, and, and, and made all of my few pennies that I made over there, you know, playing uh, bass in bars, basically. Um, that was, yeah, all, it was all full-time music music playing uh, uh, income. And because of that experience, that sort of made me realize, all right, if I'm gonna do the music thing as an actual profession, 
I need to get educated because there were some huge holes in my education. I'd been playing probably eight or nine years by this point. Uh, and that as a continuing education student, sort of at age 26 is when I went to Berkeley. Okay. So this was after England? What you, you were playing around England and you decided that you needed to, uh, to get to be a better player. I, right. I needed to really like, you know, I, I growing up, I'd read about, you know, uh, in the music magazines, you know, I read about Berkeley, I read about U Miami, I read about North Texas state. Uh, and I lived in England I was there for about a year and a half. And I even remember looking at like the Guildhall school of music and seeing if that was possibly what I wanted to do, but I decided, First off, you know, the immigration situation was such that it was going to be much easier if I just came back to the United States. And also of all the music programs and what I knew about them and what I knew about who their alumni were, I decided that Berkeley was probably the place that I needed to, to go. And, Berkeley, uh, yes, it was. I kind of fell into a similar thing and wound up there eventually myself. So Berkeley, now you must have had, and this is something that I know about you personally, but it sounds like even back then you had some sort of uh, networking chops. Like you said that you got out on the scene and you were playing and you were, and things like that. So um, that came natural to you. And what do you, what, what do you say to that? I mean, you, you're just always on the scene, yeah? That, that's, a, that's a nuanced question for me because I consider myself to not be good at those chops. I'm not a good social climber. I'm not a good glad hander flesh presser that's not my strength and that was what i was doing you know as a publicist when i worked at epic records you know it was all about schmoozing the 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 magazine writers and the newspaper writers and you know and i was i was terrible at it man it just wasn't i wasn't good at it i'm not a very social sort of being like i had a uh i i would see people in that job who were former you know social directors for their fraternity or sorority or something be really successful in that and sort of building those coalitions. And, and it wasn't something that came naturally to me at all. That said, I knew that what you have to do is you have to be on the scene. You have to be present. You have to be seen. You have to have a business card ready. You have to have, you know, a custom imprinted guitar pick ready to hand out to everyone, which yes. is turned out to be, yeah, that was a big hit for me. That's what I got from you. That was the first thing I got was, uh, was your, uh, your, your little pick. I think I probably still have it somewhere. Everybody does, and they were neon pink, and you know, I would just hand it to them and go like, "My card," and people were like, "Oh yeah, that's gangster, that's ghetto, very nice, very nice," you know. Yes. Oh well, I have to ask because you were, and you can do this as briefly or not at all. But Funk Boy, where did Funk Boy come from? It was bestowed upon me, as all good nicknames are, uh, and it was during my college radio uh, disc jockey days, because at that time the music that I was interested in was more classic soul, rhythm and blues, modern R&B, really funk music, you know, through the, my studies with the bass. Uh, and I just knew more about that music style and those genres and those artists and most of the people, you know, around me at my, you know, mostly Lily White college radio station, you know. So I, I, I was bestowed upon that name upon me by a fellow DJ and said, we're going to call you Funk Boy. I'm like, okay. And here I am, a funk, middle-aged man at this point, but it's it, the moniker has stuck with me, and it's become my artist name now, and fine with me. Works good. Works good for me, too. 
Awesome. Well, I, you know, as long as I've known you, I've never actually known that story, but it, it makes sense. Um, or maybe you did, did tell me that story. I just kind of tuned it out, which I sometimes have done over the years. Anyways, uh, so that's your education. So Berkeley, you had a, so you uh, filled up the holes, like you were saying, in the playing. And so after Berkeley, where are we at? What do you want to do? Where do you go? Well, just another quick word about Berkeley. So when I decided to go to Berkeley, uh, this time I was, like I said, I was older. I was, I was 26 years old. So this time I was paying for it myself. You know, this was not uh, a gift of the parents, although my dad did help me out getting, my, you know, the, the first semester paid for because I wasn't, you know, I, it was sort of a last minute decision. I wasn't uh, able to get all the, the financial aid documents done in time or whatever. So he, he, he gifted me like, you know, he floated me the first semester. The rest of it I had to pay for on my own with student loans. There was a, a small amount of scholarship money. Um, and also because I knew that what I really wanted to do was be in New York City. I knew I needed to sort of get in and get out of Berkeley as quickly as possible. So what I did was I went, um, I think it was five straight semesters, no summer breaks. I started actually in the winter, winter, so 91, 92. Uh, and I graduated in, in 18 months, uh, magna cum laude, because you know I was paying for it myself. I wanted to get my money's worth. I was advised by Will Calhoun, of the great band Living Color, great drummer, nice. all of your drummer friends, who was a Berkeley alumni. He said, listen, if you're going to go, go find Ed Tomasi. Uh, go get these classes that are Herb Pomeroy. So go find Herb Pomeroy. Get these classes that are the hardest ones in, in school, notoriously, and go take those classes because those are the things that are going to kick your tail and, and, and actually get you to get something out of it, get that value for a dollar. Because he said, you know, Calhoun said to me, check it out before you spend that money. Check it out. Yeah. And I took the advice and I checked it out. So I studied with Herb Pomeroy. I studied with Ed Tomasi. You know, I took, I'd, be, I'd also studied privately with a guy in London. I just took uh, a private bass lessons from a guy um, that taught me, Joe Hubbard is his name. He taught me the entire Berkeley Harmony system as part of his, you know, course of study within six months. So I don't, if you remember when you get to Berkeley, you know, because everyone's coming from a different level of uh, background, they give you a placement exam to sort of find out where you are. Mm -hmm. And in the placement exam, I placed out of two, two years of harmony. All my harmony requirements, you know, the first harmony class I took at Berkeley was an elective, it was a reharm. So I got to study advanced harmony, advanced arranging, advanced improvs. So, it was a good way for me to do it uh, as being a little older and also to get in and get out because again, my sights were set on New York city, which is where I arrived in the fall of 92. Fall of 92. So you graduate Berkeley cum laude, magna cum laude. Yep. And you go to New York and, um, you hit the ground running. What do you, you, you're out in this it, it, as a player or did you, did you go back to some sort of, other thing to pay the bills? Uh, I did temp. I temped for about three years until I could afford to pay uh, the rent full time with the music. Um, I was typing resumes for the people that the phone company was laying off. These were like career employees who'd ever only ever had one job in their lives. You know, they were in their sort of mid 40s. And uh, at that time, it was 9x, the New York, New England exchange was going through this huge downsizing. And just like offloading all this, you know, this huge workforce. So they put, they opened a thing called the Career Resource Center, and they hired a bunch of young temp typists like myself to type their resumes. And uh, 
it was a good karma job, let me tell you, you know, but I, I did it, I did it for three years. So like, that's hardly temporary, isn't it? You know, but I was ordering, making temp wages for three years. The whole time during that time, though, I'm going to jam sessions, I'm, you know, trying to meet this person, that person going to blues jams, going to jazz jams, uh, going to clubs, trying to sit in, trying to meet people, um, and very circuitously except it all sort of made sense like i ended up playing some blues gigs with a friend of mine who i knew from my new orleans days who is now in new york a, a great blues singer named timothea timothea beckerman she was called the new orleans blues siren uh, and she was wow. about four foot eleven and just a shouter she was amazing um so i was playing gigs with her i was uh for, you know like 50 bucks a, a night with a barbat that's how I met Crispin Co from the Uptown Horns. Was on a fifty dollars gig at La Barbat. Um, I also told another friend of mine from New Orleans that I just graduated Berkeley and I was in New York and uh, looking for people. And she's like, "Oh, my cousin lives in New York, and my cousin knows this guy, and he's the music director of so and so, and maybe she'll pass your number along." Turns out she did. The guy was the music director for the Shirelles. Wow. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, you know, Will Used to Love Me Tomorrow, uh, Soldier yeah. Boy, all these things. Uh, and he he had a gig, it was a kind of a last minute thing that uh, they had a day trip to play a family fun fair in a parking lot, a church parking lot in Massachusetts. So this is a four or five hour van ride up to this, you know, parking lot in the summer to play in a tent sweltering outside in a, in a, in a tuxedo. And then like a four or five hour trip back to the city no hotel rooms or anything like that um, yeah, you made it man you're oh, the big well, time now brother i didn't know this going in but what i what i came to find out later was the music director needed to get rid of this gig in the worst way you know because he had anything better to do basically uh, so he came to see me play i believe it was with timothea at the ear inn okay. uh so this is like, you know, midnight to 3 a.m. on a probably a Wednesday night, Thursday morning, you know. Uh, prime again, slot. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the prime time. And again, it, it, it easily a $50 gig or maybe a tip jar gig, I don't know. So this guy I've never met before, he comes in and he sits at the bar and he's got a manila envelope in his hand. And he sits there and watches me and basically he knew that I'd been to Berkeley, so he assumed from that that I must have some, you know, level of education, some competency because I went to Berkeley. So uh, what I found out later from him was uh, basically he came in to see me. And if I could play at all, I had the gig. <laughs> that was it. Huh? That was it. <laughs> so it turns out I could play at all. And he handed me the manila envelope and what it had in it was a normal bias cassette of a uh, cassette tape of, of a board recording of their live show and a stack of Xeroxed charts of all their music. And it was sort of my job to show up with no rehearsal and just nail the show. And because we had the training that you and I both had at Berkeley, I, I knew how to do that and I knew how to prepare for the gig. Uh, I was familiar with a lot of the music because, you know, I know the Shirelles. I'm a big fan of the Shirelles. I was sure. a, a really, you know, honored to be asked to play with them. So yeah, I, so. I, I wanted to do a good job. And, and I, you know, I, uh, 
clearly I passed the audition because they kept me in the in the rotation. Like there were, there there are are always at least you know three or four or five bass players circling around the Shirelles at any sort of given time, and just whoever's available, which is a good way to do it because you get somebody that you know you know you have five people that are good, but they might be busy doing something else, so you find who's available. Um, that day, uh, with the Shirelles at a family fun fair in a church parking lot in Massachusetts. Uh, I met a drummer named Crusher Green. Crusher Green. Crusher Green. Yeah. Yes. Crusher, who you know well, was the music director and drummer for the uh, late, great Wilson Pickett for 35 years. I think he actually joined Pickett's band when uh, Mustang Sally was on the charts. Wow. Yeah. Right. So, and he'd also been playing with the Shirelles on and off since the 60s. Uh, so he, he, he liked the fact that, A, I came in completely prepared. Like there, there was no rehearsal. It was just like one, two, three, four, go. And, you know, nailed the gig, did everything, hit all the marks, you know, because the, the live show they gave me was verbatim. It left really nothing to chance. The charts were not very specific, but the roadmaps were there, the chords were there, you know, and I could, I could interpolate the parts, whatever. So anyway, Crusher was impressed enough to, with my playing and my preparation, more important, preparation. That's the important part of this. Yeah, right. Because he was also in a band called the Uptown Horns Review. See where this is going? I see where this is going. Okay. So the Uptown Horns Review uh, had a record out. They had their own album with a lot of really very cool special guest artists uh, that was released in about, I want to say, 94. Uh, and they were going to do a showcase at the Bottom Line, which was one of the great venues to play in New York City of all time, one of my favorite places of all time. Sadly, no longer there. Um, the Uptown Horns, uh, whoever their bass player was at the time, I'm not sure. T.M. Stevens did the record. I don't know if he was in the band. They had a bunch of guys that they'd been using. Whatever, somebody wasn't available. So they asked Crusher as the drummer, said, who would you like to have as the bass player? He said, you know... There's this new kid that I met playing with the Shirelles, and he does his homework. That's what they said. They said his name is Ivan. And Crispin, who I played with, with his $50 blues gig with La Barbat with Timothy, he said, oh, yes, I know him. I play with him. He has a good feel. You're hired. So I got a week before the showcase at the bottom line. I had to meet uh, the trumpeter Larry Etkin on the street on 25th Street in between 6th and 7th Avenue, like in front of his house. And he handed me a manila envelope. The dreaded Another manila envelope. <laughs> the manila envelope. And in it is a normal bias cassette tape of the songs from the Uptown Horns Review album. I don't even think there were charts in it. I think, no, I had to do my own transcription. So I had a week to transcribe the record using all of my skills, all of my powers that I'd uh, ascertained from Berkeley College of Music. And we had one rehearsal the day before, and the next night was the show. Uh, it was two sold-out shows at the bottom line. It was the Uptown Horns featuring uh, Charlie Giordano, who now plays with uh, Kid Bruce from, Springsteen. That's the kid from Jersey, whatever his name is. Uh, Susie Tyrell, who also plays with this kid from Jersey name, who you just said, Springsteen. Um, Bernard Fowler, who plays with a band called the Rolling Stones or something. Uh, Vernon Reed, who was uh, the 
lead guitar guitar, the right? with the guitar. <laughs> our player from the big color the shred master of all shred masters uh i'll have another word about vernon in a second because i work for his record label and uh extra special guest peter wolf from the jay giles band that was the first gig first show one rehearsal show up you better know what you're doing and Crusher knew that they needed somebody who was going to be a super homework guy for that particular application, because there was, you know, you have to come in knowing almost everything, because uh, you got one rehearsal, hit it, quit it. And th this one, you was your own charts that you made. You transcribed the board mix. I transcribed the, that particular gig. They gave me a, a normal bias cassette copy of their album, the CD. Okay. That okay. So I had studio recordings. Uh, the studio recordings featured Keith Richards and Albert Collins and uh, Peter Wolf. Like I'm listening to all these guys. I'm transcribing the bass parts. TM Stevens is the bass player. I'm transcribing his parts going like, okay, I, I think I can do this. <laughs> and the Uptown Horns, you know, I don't know if, how much you know about them, but they're the horn section on Cameo Word Up. They're the horn section on B-52. James Brown living in America. Right? James Brown living in America. That's Crispin Seo plays the alto solo on a top 10 pop number, you know, top 10 hit. Buster um, Poindexter too, right? Isn't that them on Hot, Hot, Hot? Buster Poindexter, uh, R.E.M., Tom Waits, you know. Rolling on, Stones, they were supposed to be on. So yeah, the, the, they were on the, uh, the Steel Wheels. Steel Wheels. Yeah. Correct. The horn section on the Steel Wheels tour. So these guys are like, I knew them. I knew all the, all the Jay Giles too. They were in the Jay Giles, they were in the Jay Giles band when, when Jay Giles like split up in 86, whenever that was. So these are the guys that I knew their names from record jackets growing up. I knew their sound from listening, you know, and like suddenly I was in the same room with them going like, okay, you know, I think I can hang, you know, <laughs> and I guess I did because I, I've been working with them ever since. And that was 94. So that's 26 yeah. years. With the and I'm glad you did. Cause you got me a couple gigs off of it too. <laughs> this is all leading up to trying to get gigs for you, Joe. That's, that's all. Hey, man, that's why I honored you with the number two slot in the Drumming Career Podcast. Because the thing is, if you want to have a successful career, meet a guy like that. Yeah. Be yeah. his friend. But at the same time, what you said is what is really important, the whole preparation thing. And I can't think, and I know you've run across the two where how many musicians just think that they can just work off of their talent or play by ear or something, or think that they can get through without reading and all of that stuff and just kind of show up and, and you are telling the exact opposite, that it's all preparation. Not only am I telling that, but I know from personal experience that having tried to hire people to back up some of the artists in the market. If I had some really bad experiences with hiring people who had tremendous credits or tremendous reputations, but were not necessarily A, into doing what it took to nail this particular gig, or B, maybe not having the skill sets to prep a book or prep a gig. You know, like you, that's a different skill set. Having all the chops in the world or the best feel in the world or the most record credits in the world does not necessarily mean that you're the type of person who can show up with no rehearsal or one rehearsal and nail a gig. Exactly. Yeah. Separate, completely separate skill set. And again, I learned that the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, which is a nice little segue. I know that you did that on purpose and you're being the showbiz guy that you are. 
So, uh, which brings me to the musical director. You have yeah. not only been a bassist as a side man, but you've also been the musical director for many, many different projects. So how did that happen? How did you get into that? Oh, uh, it kind of sort of naturally evolved. There's a couple of things that, that go into that. Uh, the main reason is what we just said, the preparation. Because I actually did the preparation and I learned the songs and I made my transcriptions and I'd written out my roadmaps meant that very often I would be in a situation where at a rehearsal, I might be the only one who really knew what was going on, what, what the roadmap was, what the music was. Um, this happened in so many situations. Like, you know, it gets to the point where people would go like, Ivan, what's next? And I'd be like, this is the bridge coming up. You know, it, it, it almost grew out of sort of being uh, uh, a librarian of the music, believe it or not. Uh, that was thing number one. Thing number two, uh, what I learned from uh, my first gigs with the Shirelles is their music director at the time. Um, well, there, there are two music directors that I kind of that I kind of took to heart. Um, their music director at the time could could play his instrument, uh, know completely on by on autopilot what was happening with music, and be able to have a conversation with you at the same time. So he's playing ring, ding, 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 ding. Okay. And four bars, the bridge is going to come up, and I'm going to signal we're going to go to the bridge then, right? Right. Like, it was a little brain separation that made complete sense to me once I saw it done. And, and it, so I, I, there's no reason why I figured I couldn't do it as well. What I've come to understand from, you know, being under other music directors who may or may not be able to disengage their two sides of their brain like that is that it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people, I don't think. So... Thing number one was I figured out you needed to be able to to speak calmly and clearly while you were doing something else. So your your instrument, your parts had to had to be on autopilot. You almost had to be over prepared. So your stuff, you didn't have to think, think about your stuff. And then being the music, you know, uh, the copyist, whatever, I had sort of knew what everybody else in the band was also supposed to be doing. And then the only other piece to that I'll add is uh, I saw years ago going back. Um, I think maybe when I was at Berkeley, you know, like they would have MTV on in the dorms, you know, you would sort of like, you take a break from shedding or studying, you just go sit in the lounge and just watch whatever it went on. And there was a video, a live concert video of Hall of Notes. Okay. Right. And at the time, G.E. Smith was their guitar player, music director. Mm -hmm. And it was a big stage. They were playing in an arena. It was a stadium. You know, it was a huge stage. It was like, you know, I don't know how many people in the band, but it seemed like the band they had probably had three keyboards and 18 percussionists and four guitar. You know, it was a big band, big stage, big show. And they were on the vamp, you know, doing the, the out courses, out courses, out courses. It's time to cue the ending. GE stood up on his Fender Twin amp, stood up on top of the amp, with a hand in the air, like, you know, the entire stadium said, oh, this must be the ending. <laughs> Just a clear, clear, clear cue that the whole band was kind of like, even if they were sort of in their little, you know, reverie grooving on their little thing, when they saw that, like, okay, everybody went and focused and they nailed the ending. I was like, aha, aha. that's my man. So I, you know, I've, I've only met GE once. I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. But uh, just from seeing him on TV, I was like, "That's that's the 
example I wish to live by. Very cool. Well, that is, uh, as somebody who has been directed by you, I can say that you're very good at that. You are, and, and there's a, I don't know if you gave me three elements or if there were just two, but there is a third one of you also naturally being like, what are you, six, five? Six, five without the pumps in the hair. Yeah. Without the pumps in the hair. Okay. So no, yeah. So on stage, you're like seven feet tall is what you're saying. So you're naturally kind of built for it. Cool. Well, that's great. Um, Do you like, it it seems like a stressful job. I got to tell you, being a musical director uh, seems like it might be stressful. Do you like it? Uh, it depends on the situation. It can be very stressful. Um, the secret there is to surround yourself with people that are way more talented than you are, than I am, I should say. So like, you know, uh, your guest last week, the great and inimitable Tony Lewis, I dragged Tony with me around the world. And I don't mean, you know, figuratively, I mean, literally, we've been from Asia to Europe, all across uh, over the States and back again. And one of the reasons I dragged Tony Lewis around is because not only is he an amazing musician and he has chops for days, but he also, and a lot of people don't know about this and you didn't really cover this last week because he would never say this, but I'll say it. He has perfect pitch and he has a photographic memory. So while he's playing the drums, he can lean over to you and say, the bass line starts in B and it goes like this, he'll sing your part in tune with no reference pitch. And he's got a photographic memory of of all the Motown recordings of all the stacks recordings. He just, he just, he's an encyclopedia of knowledge. So like it, you know, as you say, it can be a stressful situation. If I'm stressed with X, Y, and Z on the night, and maybe I count something off just a hair bright, just a hair bright, you know, I just get, I get a little, excited in my adrenaline tony would come in like you mean here i'm like thank you my friend that's exactly what i meant right on. he probably developed a little little symbiosis like we were both looking at the back of sam's head and reading his mind and then we're both not looking at each other and reading each other's mind you know so like if i have him on the set if i have the uptown horns reading the horn books i know they can read anything I have Mark Newman on guitar. I have Jim Downer on keyboards. Like I can't miss really. So like there there is stress involved, but knowing that my musicians or the people that I've hired, my friends, whatever, knowing that they're all going to do their jobs, they're all going to do their homework, they're all going to be able to read anything I put in front of them, uh, that sort of allows me to possibly enjoy myself. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, you're an MD, you're, uh, well, you mentioned Sam, um, you want to talk about, so you've been with Sam for a long time, you were his MD for quite a while. You want to talk about Sam real quick? The, the great Sam Moore from Sam and Dave fame, the original soul man, the original hold on, I'm coming, the original when something is wrong with my baby, something is wrong with me. Stax original originator from Miami, Florida. Uh, I was his music director on the road for 13 years up until his retirement uh, five years ago. He's at age 80. He's, he's 85 now. Uh, he'll still go out and do concerts where it's like he's a special guest. He'll come on and do three or four songs as a guest. So he doesn't need my services for that. But anytime the 13 years prior to that, he needed a, a band, you know, uh, or somebody to come in and conduct 
a thing where he was doing a guest spot, he would call me. Uh, I first met him with the Uptown Horns. See how this is all working? The Uptown Horns uh, were sort of the rhythm and blues backing band of choice for touring artists, especially, I'd say, I don't know, probably through the 80s to the 2000s, but especially in the 90s when I joined them in like 94. So anytime a, a, a singer would come to town and needed sort of a pickup band, uh, they would call the Uptown Horns. And, and I got to meet, you know, and play behind Sam Moore, Solomon Burke, Percy Sledge, Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas, Eddie Floyd, um, Gene Chandler. I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch, you know. Uh, and, and, and so I met Sam in, we figured it out one time, but I found like a, an old reference online. I met him in like 96 and then became his music director in uh, 2003. Um, Tony mentioned this, it was, a, it was a premiere party for the soul music doc, documentary, uh, Only the Strong Survive. Yep. And it was one of those situations where Sam's music director uh, had been George Naha, a guitar player, a great guitar player from New Jersey, going back to the Sam and Dave days. George played with Sam and Dave like in the, in the early eighties uh, before they split up and before Dave passed away. Uh, and it was one of these situations where it was a last minute thing. George was already booked doing something. Uh, he knew he'd sort of like, you know, he'd been there and done that. He'd, he'd seen everything <laughs> that the, the world had could probably show him with Sam. So he said, you know what, maybe give it to Ivory because he'd seen me, you know, do stuff with the Uptown Horns and whatnot. Um, they called me for that show. I, I hired Tony Lewis that night, uh, Charlie Giordano. Um, the that night we were the house band we were backing sam but we were also backing um pe other people in the movie so we were, we were backing carla thomas we were backing ann peebles the shy lights uh mary wilson from the supremes and this again was a thing we had to put together with one rehearsal have everybody on the same page and actually you know at one meeting and get this thing this show up and running and we it was a sold out show at bb king's club in times square uh, and after that night, sort of like Sam and his, his wife and manager, Joyce, kind of looked at me and said, you'll do. You want to go on the road with us? I was like, I'm around. Sure. Give me a call. And uh, yeah, stay with him for 13 years. Great. And thanks, because I'm one of those. You hired me. And so thanks again. Remember, <laughs> yeah. it's got to go. We, you mentioned the thing coming back to me. That's right. That's right. So um, great. So now you've done all this stuff with all these people that are like, you've known this music forever you're out there you're doing it um and broadway comes along broadway. how did that happen you were not i mean well you can answer i don't think that you were specifically dreaming of having a broadway gig just not at all. how did it happen let us know uh again and, and this is true for every phase of my career and everything that you know that happened to be one thing always leads to another and you're never sure what's going to lead to what. Um, so two things happen there. Uh, one, uh, our, our dear friend, Mike Paseglia has sort of a, a monthly, uh, uh, meeting of, of bass players. He calls the NYC bass brunch. You know, we all get together and commiserate and talk about our strings and our, our pickups and all it's horrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing that the should never be subjected to. But among us, you know, we, we, we sort of meet and greet. And uh, I met a gentleman uh, named Winston Roy. Okay. 
never seen him play. He'd never seen me play. I uh, didn't know anything about him. You know, I met a whole room full of people. Some people I knew, some people I didn't know. Uh, very shortly after that, uh, Richie Kanata called me to sub one night at the Bitter End uh, Monday Night Blues Jam for, again, $50, $50. Uh, <laughs> as I'm on stage playing, uh, the uh, I think Lisa Miller was running the clipboard that night. So she came up, you know, the singers were changing over and we're backing up people. And uh, I was in Blues Jam house bands for years, uh, which really like hones your ear amazingly well. You really have to learn how to listen big. So Lisa came up to me between songs and said, uh, yeah, there's a guy over at the bar, Winston, he wants to talk to you uh, when you get a break. I'm like, all right, cool, cool. So uh, Winston said, hey, you know, we met at the, at the base run. I was like, great. He said, would you ever consider uh, subbing on Broadway? I was like, tell me more, you know? And he was, he was the bass player in a, a show called Rock of Ages which was an 80s rock hair, hair metal musical, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, you know, just every, you know, beautiful rom-com, you know, silliness that you could imagine set to a soundtrack of 80s hair metal. Um, and he said, yeah, he's, he's the bass player in this show. He needs subs. He's having a hard time finding people who show up and do their homework. Again, with the home <laughs> and with the homework and the preparation and all of the hay and how many gigs are available to us when musicians don't do that. Right. Correct. Correct. So like, you know, this was a, a, a good paying job. It was a highly coveted job. I learned, came to find out I didn't really know anything about Broadway at all at the time. Uh, and what he gave me was a. a I think it was, we graduated from uh, a normal bias cassettes at this time to like a CD-ROM. I got a CD, a CDR. Uh, we're moving up in technology. Yeah, moving up, moving up. This is how you can tell we're moving into the modern age. This is 2009. So he handed me a, a CD of the bass monitor recording because they all had in-ear monitors. So he had just his monitor recording. And he said, uh, there is a score, but the band's on stage. They're in costume, they're in makeup, you know, there, there's some choreography involved, there's some stage business involved. Um, he said, there is a score, like there's somebody actually written all this stuff out. He said, but you're better off not looking at it because there are discrepancies in it and we may have changed some things in the course of the show. And really the show is 100% memorized. So it's a two and a half hour show that's completely memorized. You know, He said, basically take the recording, commit it to memory, whenever you're ready, call me. And then we'll have you come in. And you, again, there's no rehearsal. You have to show up and do a live performance in front of a thousand of your closest friends. <laughs> and you have to nail it. You can't, there's no, right. there's no second take on this thing. You know, so it's the first time you sub on Broadway, you're basically wearing a diaper because the stress level is that high. You know, it's, 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 it's enormous, you know, and Again, I'm out of my element. You know, the only thing that felt normal is like we were playing the part of a band. We're on stage, so we're standing on a riser and we're, you know, we're flipping our hair around and the whole thing, you know, so that that felt normal to me. Uh, in terms of like the theatrics of it all, you know, even though I'd been in theater in high school, I wasn't in musicals in high school. So I didn't understand how necessarily that worked. Um, but I learned on the job and, and I became, I guess, a, a trusted uh, deputy to uh, Winston Roy, who I owe my 
eternal thanks to because he hired me over that show ended up running six and a half years. Wow. So I did over a hundred, over, excuse me, I did over 300 performances on Broadway uh, of Rock of Ages over the course of the run of that show. And uh, that, because of that, then you sort of meet this person and you meet that person and you find out about this pit and you find out about that pit and you go watch the book and you meet the other guy at the base brunch and, you know, eventually, uh, I forget what my second show was. I think it was Kinky Boots. The bass chair was held by our friend Mike Viseglia, who we knew from the bass brunch. Uh, I managed to uh, then sub on uh, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dart, which was an interesting situation because they had two bass players in the pit due to some very, very long story that involves that there have been books written about. I won't go into here. But the second bass player was our Berkeley classmate, Richard Hammond. Sure. So I said, Richard, you know, do you ever need help down there uh, in the pit? Let me know. He said, I don't, but I think Aiden, the other bass player, does. So he introduced me to Aiden. I ended up doing 45 performances at Spider-Man. You know, so not, you know, uh, yeah, so I'm up to, uh, I guess, a dozen shows at this point in, in my career. Uh, that said, I've never held the chair. I've always been the sub guy. Okay. Or the only chair I actually did hold was off-Broadway. Uh, a show called This Ain't No Disco at the Atlantic Theater, which uh, was, I guess, three summers ago now, written by Stephen Trask and Peter Yanowitz. Stephen was the guy who uh, wrote Hedwig and the Angry Inch, mm -hmm. which I also did on Broadway. I subbed on, on Hedwig and the Angry Inch, you know, so I've had a couple of, I'm also, I, I guess, in that world that uh, people feel comfortable having me on stage because I have a certain, you know, energy about performing live. Yes, so not, you have a look. Pits. I got a little, yeah, I have a look. That's, uh, that's cool. Do you like it? Do you like the Broadway thing? I mean, I'm sure you do, but what, what do you, do you have a preference? Is it too, too far out of your comfort zone? What do you, what do you feel about well, it? You know, I started in 2009 doing that. So we're, I guess, getting close to 12 years of, of Broadway experience. Uh, it's a love hate sort of thing. Like if you get past the initial, like I said, the first time you sub on a show, it's just, it's a total panic. It's complete panic. There's no possible way you, you get the cold sweats by the third song. You're like, I don't want to be here right now. I would literally like to put down my instrument, stand up and walk out of the theater. Nothing would make me happier than that. You know, but you have, you have to push through this abject terror. And then if you can get through that and then you can get through a period of time where you're subbing on the show semi-frequently and by which I mean, you know, once every couple of weeks or more frequent than that, then it starts to become really comfortable and fun. So I had a tremendous time in the pit of uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, for instance. I did probably close to 45 shows over there. And by the time you're through the, the terror and the panic, you know, it's just it feels like, you know, getting paid to, to hang out with a good friend that you still have to be as pitch perfect as you possibly can. Every performance Broadway people do not appreciate improvisation. They do not appreciate mistakes. You know, you need to like nail the book as written because as a sub also, this is the other thing about being a sub on Broadway. You're not there to bring your personality as a sub. If you hold the chair, you may, you know, be called upon to sort of like bring your your chops and ideas to a, to a book. But as a sub, there's a book that's been established and it's been written down by a copyist and it's been, you know, uh, canonized by by the person who holds the chair. 
So the best uh, compliment you can get as a Broadway sub, if somebody sees you in the hallway at intermission downstairs, they go, oh, is, are you on tonight? I didn't, I didn't know. Meaning you're, didn't you're, yeah, they didn't know because you're, you're doing it as seamless an impression that you can of the person that you're subbing for that they're not jarred by anything that they hear out of the monitors because the singers and the actors and the dancers, they need to have things regimented so that they can hit their marks on time. They can get their dialogue on time. They, they don't need to be distracted by, you know, the new bass lick I learned last, last week. That really upsets people, you know. I'm sure it does. I mean, you know, if you're on Broadway, I, I guess that would kind of throw you, maybe. I don't know. Um, okay, so that's uh, the Broadway the, the Broadway vibe. How about uh, we're going to bring it up to the COVID thing. What were you, what were, you, uh, were you embarking on anything before COVID took it out or what was happening with you before? Jay, were uh, you anything booked? I'm trying to think. I didn't have anything specifically booked. I, I was subbing on, uh, on Ain't Too Proud, the Temptations Broadway musical occasionally. I probably did maybe six or eight performances before everything shut down. Uh, really enjoying that book a lot. You know, just uh, something from my friend, the, the great George Farmer, um, who really is a, is a James Jamerson, the great bass player from Motown. He's a, he's a, a disciple of Jamerson's. So his book at the Broadway show was really uh, steeped in the transcriptions of Jamerson. So to play that book every night was a real challenge. It was a super, Nervous, difficult, but but what a rewarding book to be able to play. Um, I I don't, you know, there were some things on the back burner that were about to come through, like this might have happened, that might have happened, and then everything got shut down. I was doing, I certainly had most of the year booked playing uh, weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs as we do. You know, I had club dates booked for uh, throughout the end of the year, and they they all went away. So. The income went away, the job security went away, and, and I was convinced at the time, I said, all right, this is gonna be two months. We can do it, we can weather the storm, two months in and out, and we'll be back to work by March, April, May, uh, no problem. We'll be back to work by summer 2020, and yeah. here we are. It'll, 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 it'll happen the, eventually, you just keep plugging along. Yeah, one of the last things I, I did right before the the the, lock, the lockdown, the two I think the two weekends before, like the first two weekends of March, I did these multi-act uh, oldies concerts, uh, backing up Joey D from Joey D and the Starlighters, um, Charlie Thomas from the Drifters, I think the Tokens were on. Uh, I want to say Larry Chance and the Earls were on. Um, I can't even remember who, oh, the Chantels, the Chantels were on. That was great. It was the first time I got to play with them. And again, I was playing, you know, across the stage from me in the horn section with my old buddy, Chris Bencio from the Uptown Horns. And we did these wonderful concerts. One was up in uh, Tarrytown, the music hall of Tarrytown. And the other one was in uh, New Jersey, State Theater of New Jersey, I think. Uh, so like, it just felt like, you know, we're playing with these classic soul artists. We're playing the, the doo-wop. We're doing what we do and reading charts and, 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 and backing up six acts a night and just having a great time. You know, I mean, you really come off of one of those concerts feeling like you've, you've, you've walked through the history of modern music uh, and you, you feel good. You know, it's, it's a great rewarding feeling. And then it just, uh, shut, shut. yeah, 
Yep. Well, but since that happened, you, um, not to be, you know, held down, you've had a bunch of different projects that you're, uh, you're working on, uh, including a, a video series. Yeah. Video series and podcast called, uh, am I famous yet? Am I famous yet? The subtitle memoir of a working class rock star. Perfect. <laughs> so about, I say, starting about four years ago, um, and this relates to the project that you and I did together too, all the, the recordings that we did, you know, typically in, in our industry, when we're doing the freelance music game, the summertime is our busy season and the wintertime things really tend to slow down quite a bit. So, you know, many, many years ago, 13, 14 years ago, I remember you and I and Jim Dower got together and said, we're, got, we're slow for this winter, what are we gonna do? So we decided to, to start recording our original songs together, kind of the way we had done when, when we first met at Berkeley College of Music. There would be all these ensemble classes where people would bring in, you know, the original material where they bring in, you know, cover material. Uh, and it was, you know, I, I remember doing recording ensembles. I remember doing live music ensembles, you know, at, at school. So <clears throat> the three of us sort of recreated our own recording ensemble in the wintertime when we were slow because we had the time and we would meet over in your garage in Rego Park, Queens. And uh, I would bring in a song. Typically, you only brought in a couple, I remember, but you were working on audio engineering at the time. So you were the recording engineer and the drummer. So I would bring in a, an original song. We would, we would do one rehearsal of my song. We would do one take and then we would take a break and go across the street to the deli and get a sandwich. Yep. We would come back and Jim Dower would give us a piece of paper. And we would do one, one rehearsal, one take of his song, and then meet again the next Tuesday. And we did this for four years or something. We got an enormous amount of material in the can. Uh, and then you shuffled off to Buffalo and Dower shuffled off to Massachusetts. So uh, that kind of put the end to that. For the, so about four years ago, Faced with another hard winter facing me, you know, and 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 having no bookings in the in the uh, in the diary, as it were, I, I was I've been told many times, like I have a lot of different road stories and anecdotes. This happened, that that happened, and people say, "Oh, that's funny. You should write a book. You should write a book." So I said, "All right, maybe I'll write some of them down, see how it goes." So four years ago, I started writing a book, and it turned into a forty-two chapter, ninety thousand word volume that was not quite finished at the time. And I was kind of wondering like, what do you, what do, you do with this thing? Do you self-publish? Do you, do you what? So I have a dear friend of mine from, uh, from Tulane University, a friend of mine, Dr. Jeff Demoy. He was in med school when I was an undergrad. Uh, he's also a writer and uh, has, has dealt with the publishing world and the publishing game. He said, you know, what you should, what you should think about doing is serializing your book chapters as YouTube clips. I was like, that's a thought, you know, because I, I have experience being on microphone or on camera. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't uh, intimidate me to read, read on camera. So if you go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Ivan Bodley, there's a whole series uh, of videos from the uh, book chapters of Am I Famous Yet? I think we're up to chapter 30 at the moment. There's 42 chapters. So we got another like four weeks to go. It's every week, a new chapter comes out and you'll see this set behind me, you know, this is exactly where I'm shooting all of these chapters. Um, so I, I basically read a chapter and that's they're anywhere from uh, probably five to 20 minutes long per week. Uh, somewhere 
somewhere in the process of, of getting this thing released, I realized, uh, you know, we could do an audio only podcast version of it as well. So I took, you know, took the audio of the stuff that I'd already read and put it up on Anchor FM. So if you, and it's, that's available on, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, like six different platforms it's on and more to come. So that, you know, if you search for Am I Famous Yet podcast or Am I Famous Yet YouTube, this whole series of, of content will come up. And cool. because we've been locked down <laughs> for the past 10 months, you know, I've had an enormous amount of time to devote to, you know, recording the videos. That's why I guess, you know, I was busy, even though I wrote, started writing the thing four years ago, I didn't really start recording the chapters until this year, you know, uh, in, in earnest. And I, I had the time to do that. And also working on uh, home recordings that I've done from here, uh, again, based on the idea that you and I had with Jim Dower when we were doing our recording project, we were uh, we were always meeting at your house. But now, because of the quarantine, you have to do file sharing via the internet. So um, the reason I kind of got back into it is because our, our our good pal, the amazing drummer Kenny Soul, you should come over to my house and we'll cut some tracks in the basement, which we did. And then after the lockdown came, we said, well, I know, I, you know, I know he's got the ability to record in the basement. I can record here. We started trading files. Um, we pulled Newman in, we pulled Dower in, we pulled Crispin Co in. So I've got a whole series of new recordings called, I uh, call the quarantine sessions, which are all on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Ivan Bodley. And uh, I think there are 20 or 25 of those. I put out a, a new video every week. Uh, it's either a new thing, which is the quarantine sessions, or now I've been remixing all the stuff that you and I did together, you know, 12 to 14 years ago, which I call music from the vaults. And I'm also filming and editing uh, video clips to go with them as well. So there's, uh, I think, 45 new, I think, yeah, it's been like 45. Yeah, you're weeks. definitely being, being productive. You also have something as far as I know, that's new for you, right? You got a debut single coming out as a leader. Is that correct? This is the first time that I've been signed as an artist to a, to a label, a record label in my, in my entire career. I've self-published four different CDs over the years, two of which you're the drummer on. I don't know if you remember. Uh, uh, and I've, I've migrated all of that catalog, plus all the catalog that's unreleased that you and I recorded with Jim Dower. And I migrated all to a, a company called Color Red Music. The website is color-red.com, color-red.com. Uh, it's a label. They're based in Denver, Colorado. They're co-founded by a guy named Eddie Roberts, who is the guitar player from the New Master Sounds, if you know that band. And... They are uh, an artist-friendly label platform, uh, digital distribution. Uh, they do some limited vinyl kind of as a special thing. Vinyl's kind of a collectible thing now. It's not like, not their main thing. Uh, but what's most interesting to me about them is they also have a publishing arm and they have a sync licensing division. So in other words, all of the tracks in my catalog uh, are gonna go up on the color red sync floor platform and they're going to be available in a searchable database for people who's, you know, if they go put in search parameters, you know, a lot of time what happens in movies and commercials is they'll put in a placeholder piece of music while they're filming it. And when it comes time to release the thing, they need to license this music, they realize they can't really afford the original recording of 
Jimi Hendrix all along the watchtower. So they can go to this database and they type in Jimi Hendrix all along the watchtower and anything that's been, they've got a lot of metadata in this thing. So anything that's, that's even inspired by Hendrix pops up as an offering to the music supervisor to say, like, would you like to license this? It's much more affordable than uh, the Hendrix estate. Um, so, so they have, it's a two pronged sort of thing. And, and I was pulled into this by a guy uh, named Lee Popa, who's a dear friend of mine, who I met uh, when he was signed as an artist to Epic Records. See, you know, that's where mm -hmm. I was his publicist back in 1988. He had a band from uh, Chicago called the Slammin' Watusis, a tremendous rock band. They were so good. Uh, and then Lee went on to become like, you know, the audio genius front of house mixer for Living Color, Cheap Trick, Rolling Stones, ACDC. Like he's had a very long and storied career in, in the music business. Uh, and because of the quarantine sessions, because of the YouTube stuff that I've been putting up, because of the music from the vault stuff every week, sort of he got in, the, in his mind, he's like, huh. I wonder why I didn't think about you in the, before this to come put your catalog over on Color Red Music. I was like, Lee, I'm here, you know. So we've, in the last bunch of months, I've been migrating the entire catalog. I've been remixing all the old stuff that never got, we never did more than board mixes back when you and I were recording. Uh, and because of the new stuff, I've also been signed as an artist, a recording artist. The artist is named Funk Boy, that's his name. And he's got a debut single uh, called Crab Walk, which will be released. I just got the release date today. It's going to be on March 9th on color-red.com. Uh, and trust me, I'll be posting about it and I'll be letting you know about it so you can tell your people about it as well. So yeah, it's the first time that I've been an artist in addition to being all the other hats that I've worn over the years. Nice. Are we gonna, are we uh, gonna go on tour when this thing's over with? We very, very well might. Um, again, my friend Lee Popo, he, they called him to basically set up their Tokyo office. This label's expanding. <laughs> they want to take over the world, and I don't blame them. They called the right guy with my friend Lee. So he's, uh, uh, he's been in Tokyo. He's back in the States now for the, some of the quarantine, but he's going to go back to Tokyo, and he's going to start their Color Red division over there. He's already doing, like, battles of the bands over there. He's connected with a string of nightclubs over there. So... You might get a call, buddy. You know, keep a bag packed. Keep Great. your passport current. We might be heading to the to the Orient. I'm down. I'm down. Um, well, I think that uh, unless there's anything else you want to talk about or mention, uh, I think that that was a pretty pretty nice, uh, solid chunk of getting to know Ivan Bodley and what makes him tick. Yeah, I think that's a lot going on for for one day, don't you? Well, it's good. It's good. I think with it, yeah, it was like uh, you know. Usually, you gotta you gotta pay a lot to get a guy that's got as much as your uh, your experience to show up and and talk about it. Well, but it, yeah, I'm very expensive and I'm worth it. I'm just kidding. But you know, again, during this time, it's been a unique opportunity to do things like this. Like you and I have talked on the phone, but we don't Zoom, you know, record live Facebook things. Uh, also sort of like, you know, getting all my friends to agree to play on my original recordings, you know, for little or no money, just because we want to have something to do and we have the capability to home record now, you know, that's, that's a very unique situation. That's, you know, we we're, we're making lemonade out of this situation 
to keep ourselves from going crazy and to stay creative and uh, just keep keep an eye towards, you know, what could be coming in the future. So we, we can hopefully remain relevant for when all the lockdowns lifted and people are ready to sit in the theater, once again, elbow to elbow, breathing on their fellow humans. Uh, I look forward to that day, I'll be honest with you. I do too, I look forward to it too. Cool, so we're gonna hook up with all the links to send uh, all the people to the YouTube and to the uh, Am I Famous Yet? That's a blast. It's always a blast to listen to you tell stories and um, and they're crazy and the music has been great. Thank you. Also, everything is available at my website, which is www.funkboy.net. Links to everything is there as well, funkboy.net. And I'm gonna hook up all the links down in the comments and all of that. Ivan, I can't thank you enough for hanging out, man. It's been a blast and uh, a real fountain of information, seriously, um, that I think that a lot of people maybe take for granted or some musicians that are interested in a career and um, that maybe don't know some of the most important stuff um, to be successful. And you really covered a lot of it. You covered it all. So I appreciate it. I thank you. and. Go ahead. One more, one more word on that point that you just brought up. This is a very important thing because I get asked about this a lot about, you know, how do I start? How do I have a career in music? And what I've noticed that every stage of my career uh, or my life, whatever, every time I've gotten to a new place, like, you know, when I got to first got to New York, people were saying, oh, you missed it. The heyday was 10 years ago when there was all this recording work, well, you know, where you get to the 2000s and people are like, oh, you missed it. You know, Napster has changed everything and the recording industry gone. You should have been here then. Every time I've gotten to some place, there's always been people saying, you should have been here then. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm here now. What, what do we do now? You know, and that's the kind of attitude you have to have going forward through all of this stuff. Like, what do we do now with the environment the way it is, with the tools that are now available to us? You know, you have instant worldwide distribution possible on YouTube now. Uh, you never used to have that before, but so does everybody else. So now you have to figure out a way to, you know, make yourself seen and heard. Um, and that's my advice. It's good advice. And I'm, I'm totally with you. I used to say the same thing, like with YouTube, if, if somebody told a 10 year old me that one day I could have my own TV channel where I could put up anything I want, I could make whatever I want, I would have been, you know, I would have gone crazy back then. And now I have one and I'm, well, I'm building it up now. But I, you know, it's, it's taken a while and uh, it hasn't it's but it's like a new frontier right this is the new frontier and like you just said we have to adapt and um, i think that even with the zoom performances i think when things come back i don't think it's going to go anywhere i think it's going to be just another option that people are going to have and uh and the streaming of shows is going to be far more i hate to use the word but the new normal but that's what i think i don't think it's going to go anywhere even when it comes back it's just going to be added on. Yeah. it's going to be a new normal i don't know if it's going to be the new normal because people I've, I've done a few live events during the quarantine. And I can tell that people are chomping at the bit. They want to be entertained. They want to be in a room. They want to hear a loud band. That's something that people desperately want. But again, as you're saying, having the ability to sort of convene people from all corners of the earth to do something virtually to see on the web, that's a powerful thing. And yeah, we're not going to lose that tool. We're going to keep that going forward. And also in creating content, you and I have talked about this many, many times. You know, You've got something to say. 
that's unique to you, to your experience, to your set of skills, you know, that is valuable to people that haven't seen what you've seen and done what you've done. So even though it feels normal to you, or it feels normal to me, like everything I've done has been one foot in front of the other. Everything came from the last thing, you know, but I recognize that there are people who haven't been on that same journey and going to uh, benefit from, from what you and I can tell them and, and, and platforms like this, you know, I've been teaching online via Zoom, whereas before we can only teach, you know, face to face. Now I have students that are kind of all over the place, you know, you know that's another thing I've been doing to try to, you know, make the groceries every week, you know, but it's, it's a new paradigm that's going to work in our favor if we allow it. I agree. And uh, I thank you so much. And uh, I guess I'll see you soon. We'll put all the links down there and on the page and go check out funkboy.net and the YouTube, all of that other stuff. And we'll see you next week. Okay.